The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Kat Rosenfield, who is a culture writer, columnist for Unheard and novelist. And her latest book is a thriller called No One Will Miss Her, which has been nominated for an award. We are going to be talking today about Elon Musk and his audacious bid to buy Twitter. Now, Kat, Elon Musk has been dominating the social media airwaves more than usual, I'd say, in the last few days. And that means quite a lot with his very typically gonzo attempt to buy Twitter to become Twitter's majority shareholder. And it's been called a sort of corporate raid and it's caused a freakout, I think among large sections of the commentariat, because Elon Musk is widely recognised as a big fan of free speech. And he's not a big fan of content moderation, which is what Twitter has spent a lot of the last few years trying to do. It seems to me as though people will do their utmost to stop him. Do you think they will succeed? Well, I mean, it is sort of ironic that the big freakout is coming from a lot of journalists who appear to be, for some reason, not fans of free speech. You'd think that would be the backbone of our industry. And yet, will they be able to stop him? I don't know. The business side of this is very opaque to me. I find it completely confusing. I don't really even understand what a majority shareholder is, you know, having never had enough money to be a majority shareholder in anything. So the perspective that I have on this is primarily a cultural one, you know, watching this panic over... I guess, just the idea that suddenly Twitter might be in the hands of somebody who the journalists and media folks and and academics and so on who congregate there don't trust. And on that front, I think that what's really fueling the panic is this realization that for all of the sort of soft power to censor that these groups of people have enjoyed on Twitter over the course of many years, it's easily taken out of their hands if somebody acquires the service and decides to change the rules. So I think it's sort of a panicked outburst in response to the sudden realization of one's own impotence in the face of Elon Musk than it is an actual flex that's going to accomplish anything. But for a lot of people, Musk has sort of emerged as a kind of white knight, a kind of saviour for free speech, because there have been other attempts, quite significant attempts, to build more pro-free speech platforms. There was Gab, there was Parler, and there have been others that have sort of fallen flat because Twitter has the dominant market share, it dominates the conversation. It is, as Musk says, the de facto public square. And so the fact that Musk wants to go after Twitter to take the big one and, and push it in a free speech direction has excited a lot of people who feel that Twitter has become a less free place in recent years. Do you think it's become a less free place in recent years? 
I think that there's been a marked shift in tone. I've been on Twitter long enough to remember when it used to be fun and uh, it used to be a place where, you know, frequently we would end up congregating to kind of engage with news stories that were maybe a little off the beaten path. You know, every time like an animal escaped and was running down the street somewhere, you know, you'd go on Twitter to kind of keep track of that story. And that, that really, to me, kind of personifies the, or embodies, you know, what made Twitter fun and exciting at first. Around, I'm trying to think when this was, when did they invent the retweet button? You know, whenever that happened, the nature of the service changed. The nature of what spread fastest on the platform changed. And I don't know, I don't know if it's gotten less free, but there certainly is a sense that the stakes are a lot higher. So yeah, I guess you would say it, it's less free, you know, that the there's a sense that the costs of speaking out if you happen to say something unpopular could be a lot greater. I don't feel as though when Twitter first came on the scene, like it was such a thing for people to lose their jobs or lose their livelihoods or have their reputations just destroyed over tweets. And then, you know, starting around, I guess it was 2013 or 2014, when Justine Seiko, you know, made a bad joke and got on a plane and it became like this party to to celebrate her impending destruction. There was really just a shift in, in tone. Suddenly people realized you could use Twitter for this. And I think people have been using it for this for a while now. There's a political dimension to this, a large one. Of course, the most famous ban that Twitter's ever done was, was Donald Trump. And there's certainly, I think conservatives are probably justified in saying that the censorship only goes one way. The content moderation is definitely biased against them. And the example they often use is that while Trump is banned, you know, spokespeople for the Taliban are not. Is that a fair criticism? (laughs) I mean, that's certainly a poignant example of how it's not an even-handed distribution of censorship on Twitter. I mean, the fact that, yes, that, that the president of the United States could be removed from the service, I don't know, there's there's so many just insane implications to that. Does it hit conservatives hardest? I don't know if I would say that that's entirely the best way to describe it. Twitter has been, I think, at the top captured by a very particular strain of sort of super progressive, in some cases like radically progressive ideology that causes the censorship of not just conservative ideas, but of ideas that are shared by something like 90% of normal Americans. You know, you've seen a lot of, for instance, um, like gender critical feminists getting their accounts banned from Twitter. You know, there are things you can say about, you know, the existence of biological sex that will get you banned from Twitter. So it's not just about conservative ideology. It's really about running afoul of a very narrow, radical ideology that responds on certain hot button issues with just real venom and and really extreme attempts to shut down speech if you happen to step on one of these specific landmines, if that makes sense. That does, that does. I mean, what Musk has said is that he's not saying it should be a total free-for-all. He thinks scams and I think some types of harassment should not be allowed. But what he does say, which I think is something most people who use Twitter would probably support, is that where it's a sort of grey area, you should err on the side of allowing it rather than erring on the side of moderating it. And I think a lot of people who use Twitter in the last few years have started to feel that 
particularly when it comes to offending certain progressive parties on issues such as you mentioned trans rights, that Twitter is is moving in a more censorious direction. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Sorry, I don't really <laughs> so, have anything to say. I didn't really say. ask a question. Just, I'm just, I was going to say, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, uh, good, good. Well, let's carry on. I mean, I think one of the reasons Twitter has succeeded is, in fact, because it does still, despite the content moderation, it does still allow conservatives and liberals to fight and because that's where you come to have your your antagonism. And if you remove that, then you end up with a sort of echo chamber, which is one, one of the reasons the conservative free speech platforms haven't worked. Do you think if Musk doesn't take over and doesn't sort of re-establish free speech on Twitter, that it will become a kind of echo chamber and might ultimately die? Gosh, I mean... I'm not sure that it's not already an echo chamber. I mean, the idea that, well, I suppose, you know, this is maybe the difference between a fight and a debate, but so much of what happens on Twitter is not really like a good faith exchange of ideas. It's one person finding an opinion that they find objectionable and then broadcasting it to their followers saying, hey, you know, look look at this jerk, like, let's get him. So I think it's really more about kind of celebrating and, and, and performing the destruction of people whose ideas we don't like. And it, it goes both ways. This is not just something that like people on the left are doing. But I don't know. I mean, it's a place where you go to to kind of sling mud around. And there are things about the way the platform is designed that basically make it a machine for fomenting outrage and that make it very difficult without like an extremely diligent commitment on both the part of both parties involved, make it really difficult to have any kind of productive exchange of ideas. So I'm not sure what Elon Musk could do that would fix that aspect of Twitter. You know, the way that outrage travels on that platform is really a feature, not a bug. The one thing that I think could potentially alter the character of Twitter as a website is if all of these people, you know, who are, I I don't want to overstate things, but they're basically the worst people on Twitter. You know, they post a lot. They spend a lot of time kind of dragging the conversation down into, you know, the absolute depths of depravity. If they're so frustrated by Musk's takeover that they just leave the platform entirely and go somewhere else, that could make it a friendlier place. Would it be a freer place? I don't know, but it would be nicer to hang out there. In the defense of the people who run Twitter in the last few years, they have tried to introduce features that make it less of an outrage generator. One thing that they do now is if you just retweet a piece without clicking on the link and opening it, they say, are you sure you want to say that without reading the article, which I think people find, I'm sure you've had it, very frustrating when it's if it's an article that you've written or something. And yes, every told, time I post one of my own articles, they're like, do you want to read this? No, thank you. Like, I think I know what's in it. Yeah. No, I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered. But I think that was an attempt to stop just a kind of knee-jerk antagonism, which perhaps was a sensible thing to do? I mean, it surely it was an attempt. Uh, did it work? No, no, it's failed. <laughs> <laughs> Quite badly, I suppose. 
Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, if we're handing out if we're handing out credit for effort, then sure, you know, Twitter has installed a few little stopgap measures to try to, you know, curb abusive comments on the platform. The thing is that these are algorithms designed to catch certain types of language or to to know if you've posted a link without clicking on it first. But that just doesn't do a whole lot to curtail the behavior that gets people dogpiled that makes the Twitter website a miserable place to be a lot of the time. Dogpiled, we should explain for some listeners who might not know, that means when you are attacked by everyone. <laughs> yes, or at least by enough people to make it feel like you're being attacked by everyone. Yes, well, that's another feature of Twitter that I suppose people might want to change is that, you know, you can be attacked by five or six people and it can feel like several thousand. Mm -hmm. And as for Musk himself... It is interesting how he divides opinion. I mean, he seems to be hero-worshipped by the kind of libertarian techno brigade who also have a strong presence on Twitter. And for that reason, I think, he is particularly hated. How, how do you feel about it? I think that Musk is... He's an interesting character. You know, he's... Can I swear on your podcast? I think so, yeah. Okay, you know, the best way to describe him is that he's a shit poster. Um, you know, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't shit poster, curtail, not a dog <laughs> He doesn't curtail his online behavior in the way that you might expect a man of his stature to do. You know, it's like if Barack Obama was on there, you know, making some of the kinds of posts that Elon Musk makes, we would think something had gone terribly wrong. So, you know, yeah, he has these sort of trollish tendencies that he hasn't dialed back, you know, despite the fact that he also has a lot of money and a lot of power. And I think that, I don't know, it's hard to imagine him, it's hard to imagine him making Twitter a worse place. I don't know if he's necessarily the person to save it. And it's interesting, too, that he has come to be kind of loathed by people on the left just because he takes this very strong stance towards free speech at least you know philosophically when he when he talks about you know things like online content moderation I, like in his own company he's been a little bit less open to criticism you know he's he's certainly made missteps there but you know he's the kind of person you know somebody who's popularized electric vehicles, you know, somebody who supports the decriminalization of drugs, you know, he's the kind of entity who people on the left would ordinarily like. And yet, because he's firmly in favor of free speech, and that includes the kind of speech that a lot of sort of the more authoritarian personalities in media and journalism find really frightening, uh, he's become this like, bad guy. Mm. I see that there's already an effort to block his takeover. And some people think that his takeover isn't really serious at all. He's just trolling. But one of the people who's trying to stop it is a Saudi, a member of the royal Saudi family, who, because of this attempt to buy Twitter, we found that the Saudis are quite heavily invested in Twitter, which I don't think a lot of people knew. And in fact, some people think they might have a larger share than we realise. And there's your dog, dog piling. I'm so sorry. Dog piling up. Yeah, no, no. He's, I he's, up, he's upset. <laughs> I, could, I quite understand it. And I think what a lot of people worry about is that rather, rather than Elon Musk, you'll now get a kind of hostile block of that. And it will end up being with Twitter being taken over by, shall we say, you know, if you think about the Saudi government, you think about some Chinese interests in Twitter, far more censorious, far more authoritarian people will run Twitter and it will carry on being the de facto square for public conversation, but it will become more like a Chinese social media company. Do you think that's the direction 
we're more likely to head in? I genuinely don't know, but I think the fact that Elon's at least apparent attempt to take over Twitter forced this question is very interesting and probably very worthwhile. Do you think that's why he's done it? He's he's deliberately prodding a kind of hornet's nest. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, does he genuinely want Twitter in his portfolio? I don't know. It's a huge investment. I mean, 43 billion, (laughs) even for a man of his wealth, is a serious amount of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that it is in keeping with his personality insofar as I understand it that, you know, this is the type of thing that he would do just as a form of trolling, you know, just to be provocative and just to kind of shine a light on, yes, you know, the hypocrisy and, and, and sort of the insanity of wanting to stop Elon Musk from like doing free speech on Twitter so that you can have the Saudi government or the Saudi royal family have a a greater stake in it. You know, I mean, which of these people is like more invested in freedom? You know, which of these people would build a society more in keeping with the American ideal? I think it's very clear, you know, what the answer to that is. And yet you have this reflexive response to Musk as though like, no, at, at any cost, we have to stop him. It could, of course, be a brilliant ploy by Musk to have himself checked And then he could go and launch his own social media platform, which, as we said before, is something various other people have tried to do. Do you think he might be trying to do that? That I doubt. It just seems like a lot more trouble than it's worth. And I don't know if perhaps, you know, Elon Musk has the type of resources that would would make him able to avoid the pratfalls that have plagued other attempts to establish an alternative to Twitter. I'm thinking especially of what happened with, I guess it was Gab and Parler, where you had conservatives who had been, you know, removed from Twitter who said, okay, we're going to go make our own website. And these places had no content moderation, which meant that they were cesspools of really ugly sentiment to a certain extent. I think that even the people who wanted to build them did not ultimately really enjoy what they had made. But also, you know, you had suddenly these sort of technological sort of cartel or like oligarchy come forward to, you know, working in concert to to make it even harder, you know, to, to build your own thing, because there has to be this cooperation. You you can't just make a website, you have to have hosting for the website. If you have like a payment system, you know, you have to you have to have that. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting out of my depth here, as you can probably tell, because I'm hemming and hawing. But basically, it's not as easy as some people might like to imagine to make your own thing. You know, all of these tech companies, you know, they, they work in concert with each other. And to a certain extent, a lot of them have been captured by the same sort of ideology that reigns at Twitter, which means that, you know, they can work together to implement what amounts to like a social credit system that shuts down attempts to build an alternative where there's less censorship. Mm. Do you think perhaps the, the bigger problem, and certainly looking at some of the people reacting so angrily to Musk at the moment, this seems to be the case, is that a lot of people actually don't really believe in free speech. I think most people think they believe in free speech, but actually most people lean far more towards content moderation. Yeah, I I think that you have to have some moderation on any platform. 
But there's a difference between that and political censorship, which is really what we've been sort of seeing on Twitter. And nobody wants to call it that. They hide behind the idea of content moderation as a way of not calling the thing what it is. But we're talking about suppressing certain voices and certain ideas because somebody finds them morally objectionable. Well, finally, Kat, you, you've been on Twitter quite a long time. You've got a, a fairly significant profile on there. Do you think you will ever find another medium, another platform that will be as enjoyable and perhaps as as useful to your career as Twitter? Useful to my career? No, I can't imagine that. You know, most of my freelance work at this point started with a relationship that I formed on Twitter including maybe my relationship with The Spectator. I think that's so, right. Yeah. <laughs> but as for a platform that I find as enjoyable, I mean, I have a real love-hate relationship with Twitter. When it's fun, it's a lot of fun. But I, you know, I don't really enjoy spending a lot of time there. Often, you know, I find that being on the website makes me feel bad about humanity in general, makes me feel or think ugly things about my fellow human beings. So, you know, if Twitter were to go away, it would certainly leave me with a certain amount of empty space to fill, but I'm not sure it would actually be a bad thing. I agree. I mean, I think, I don't don't know if you agree with this, but I I find with Twitter, it's not just that it makes me a worse person, it's it's that it reveals that I'm actually quite an unpleasant person. And I think nobody wants that in the long run. (laughs) No, definitely not. Kat, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I hope you'll come on again. And do stay on Twitter because you are one of the few enjoyable voices on there. Oh, thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.